0: All right, I have the privilege again of filling the pulpit, and we are going to be in Jonah chapter 2, so get settled in. You, if you have your Bibles, you can go there with me. We're going to read just Jonah chapter 2 today, <clears throat> but I would encourage you to read it this week, read the whole book this week. If you get the opportunity, you can read it to a little one. It's such an amazing story. Jonah chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that comes to us in season. We thank you for your word that comes to us and searches us. Your word that comes to us as the measuring rod, as the standard. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we crack it open today, you would crack open our hearts and our minds and plant this word in good soil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonah is full of typology and allusions. The book of Jonah is undeniably historical. remember we said last week, it's classified as a prophetic book because Jonah was a prophet. And this is called, in most of our um, understanding of the Bible, we call it a, a prophetic book. He was a minor prophet because his book is short. But we cannot forget that it is a historical book. All history books in the Bible were prophetic at one time, right? It's a historical book. And so we believe, as Christians at Christ Fellowship, we believe that a man was swallowed by a great fish. We believe that. that can seem unbelievable, but we believe it, because that's what our Bible says. He was swallowed by a great fish and then vomited back out onto the land alive, and it was all part of the mission God had set him to. Arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it. Since many of us are not as familiar with the um, covenant blessings and curses associated with being the covenant people of Yahweh, many of us are not as familiar with those blessings and curses as we should be, Um, we may wonder why Jonah wasn't eager to take the opportunity to go cry out against Nineveh. Remember, we said last week, Jonah was not afraid of the Assyrians. They were um, unusually cruel. They were unusually violent, even by their own, uh, by ancient standards. But Jonah was not afraid. So why wouldn't he want the opportunity to go call out against the wicked Nineveh? And the reason um, that that may be a mystery to us is because we don't understand the covenant blessings and curses as well as we should, probably. Another way we could say that is since we're not as familiar with how God likes to tell stories as we should be, we may wonder why Jonah wasn't eager to go call out against Nineveh. The reason is because Jonah knows how God tells stories and he knew what that would mean for Nineveh and for Israel. And he said... I'm out. Do it without me. I don't want any part of that. He flat out refuses. He was not eager. He runs the opposite direction. He disobeys. And so throughout this story, everything obeys. Everything obeys except Jonah. We have the wind obeys. We have the sea that obeys. The sailors obey. The great fish obeys. Nineveh obeys. The plant obeys obeys. The worm obeys. We read all four chapters last week. Maybe next week we'll get a chance to read all four chapters again. You should read it this week. But everything obeys in the story except God's prophet. Go figure. The scorching east wind obeys. The one disobeying Yahweh's word is the one sent on mission to deliver the word. Thankfully for us, disobedience does not hinder or disrupt God from accomplishing His purposes. Aren't you grateful, church, for that fact? Disobedience does not hinder God from accomplishing His purposes. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to end well for you personally, but it does not hinder God from accomplishing His purposes. In fact, much to the contrary, it turns out that while for Jonah it was high Handed rebellion that demanded confession and demanded repentance and forgiveness, Yahweh meant it for good. Yahweh meant it for good. This story would forever be um, tied to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ would take, the, uh, take up this story and tell it again. He would take up the sign of the prophet Jonah and tell it again. God meant this. If for absolutely no other reason, and there is plenty that we could point to, this divine detour of Jonah's resulted in an entire ship of heathen sailors being saved an entire ship of heathen sailors being cut to the heart, repenting of their sin, and believing in the God of the sea. If for no other reason there's that, that's not nothing. Regardless of how it appeared at the moment, as the rebel Jonah is being hurled into the sea, this would not be his final scene no matter what it appeared in the moment. As he is being hurled into the sea, this would not be the end. He sinks further down, down, down. Remember, he goes, he arises. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. And he arises and then goes down to Joppa. And he goes down into the belly of the ship. And now he goes down to the bottom of the sea, to the land, the weeds surrounding his head, to the, the roots of the mountain. Down, down, down. But this is the part in the story that it's about to take the unexpected turn. J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote the, the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, he coined this phrase called eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe. The good catastrophe. And he says this is the part in the story, the unexpected part in the story, when everything turns. When everything changes. The cross is a good catastrophe. It's the point in the story where All of a sudden, that dark, dark, dark moment turns out to be the best, the best thing. In this moment for Jonah, he's going down, and he gets swallowed by a fish. He's taken to Sheol, figuratively or literally. It doesn't matter for our purposes, right? Did he really die or was he figuratively dead? It doesn't matter for our purposes. The point is he died and he was resurrected. He went to the grave and he came back out again, just like our Lord. Um, and so this is the you catastrophe, the good catastrophe. This is the point Jonah gets swallowed up by the fish and we know, oh wait, this isn't the, this isn't the story that maybe we thought it was. Don't be like Jonah, the bad prophet who ran away from God and disobeyed him. And if you run away from God and disobey him, he'll send a giant fish to swallow you up and you'll die. This is the point in the story where all of a sudden we realize, oh, wait. There's salvation here. In the belly of the fish. In the valley of the shadow of death. There's salvation even here. So like the catastrophe of the cross, the good catastrophe, this was the moment in Jonah's story when we're supposed to recognize that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is telling a different kind of story than we may have first assumed. And we may be tempted to mainly or to only see the story as a cautionary tale. Don't run from God. Obey Him no matter what. And certainly that's good and wise guidance, Right? It's good counsel, don't run from God, obey God no matter what, right? Um, but this is so much more than just a cautionary tale. There's so much more to it, and the eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe here, points to that. This is a cautionary tale, no, uh, no more than the cross is a cautionary tale. You shouldn't crucify your messiahs, you shouldn't crucify your deliverers. Is that good advice? Yeah, of course that's great, great advice. But the cross isn't just a cautionary tale. Don't be like the Roman soldiers who scourged an innocent man and crucified him. Yes, that's, that's solid advice. But the story is not just a cautionary tale to not be that way. There is so much more to it, and this is what we see in Jonah. There's so much more to the story than just don't disobey God. Jonah is hurled into the sea, far from being the end, this was a new beginning, an event that would live on forever and be typologically tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that the good news of the gospel is on its way to the nations. We may speculate whether Jonah recognized this impending salvation as he is being swallowed up by the great fish, or if he thought that it was the tragic and yet poetic end for a renegade prophet. Think about it for a minute. This would truly be a poetically silent and dark end to an Israelite fleeing the word of Yahweh. The light and the glory of his presence. We're told in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah flees from the presence of Yahweh. The light of his presence, the glory of his presence. And wouldn't this be the poetically perfect end to that renegade prophet? Yes, it would. But it's not the end. So at some point, from the belly of the beast, Jonah prays to Yahweh, his God. you see that in chapter 2? Verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Jonah was rebelling against God, but it is clear from this chapter and from the rest of the story that Jonah was not rejecting God outright. Think of it as the kind of a situation where Jonah wants to have his cake and eat it too. He does not cease to acknowledge God but he was running from him. We, of course, have the benefit of being able to see this story from the front to the back, and we also have the benefit of being able to be on this side of redemption. And so at the end of Jonah's book, God poses a question to his prophet, and the question is meant to prompt um, Jonah and prompt Israel, the covenant people. Remember, Jonah is Israel. And it's meant to, the question at the end of the book is meant to prompt them. It says this in the last chapter, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That question is meant to prod Jonah, prod Israel to answer. And the answer that God is asking them to provide is, What? kind of God, what kind of husband do you want me to be? Jonah and Israel are committing spiritual adultery. And God is asking Jonah, God is asking Israel, what kind of God do you actually want to serve? And not not in the way that God is saying, I will bow to your whims, not that at all. But to make them think and answer the question, Do I really want a God who is not merciful as I commit spiritual whoredom over here? Do I really want a God who does not pity as I betray my husband? The answer for faithful Israel is, of course, no. No. We want mercy. Jonah wanted mercy for Israel, and he wanted judgment for Nineveh. And so God is prodding the question, do you really want a husband who is not jealous for the love of his bride? Limp-wristed husband who just says, eh, indifferent to the adultery of his bride? Jo- God is asking Jonah, is that what you want? And the, the answer is no. Of course not. Again, I believe the book itself points us to Jonah's eventual wholehearted repentance and return to Yahweh, his God. But in the meantime, this is a sinful, muddy mess, isn't it? Let's look at this prayer of Jonah. And I want you to be aware, as we look at some of these really quickly, that nearly every verse of this prayer either comes from a psalm or from some other biblical um, reference. Psalm or some other biblical prayer or poetry, or is an allusion to one of those. Um, Some see chapter 2 as a demonstration of Jonah's hypocrisy. Um, Others see it as genuine repentance. And surely we can see how the accusation of hypocrisy can seem to stick, don't we? Jonah the rebel now prays to God. And the prayer that he prays, for example, he says, verse 3, For you cast me into the deep. And we're thinking, uh, Jonah, really? Really? But let's think carefully about it. We have to acknowledge that um, we have to acknowledge that jo- that God responds to y- Jonah's prayer. Number one, we have to acknowledge that Jonah that God responds to Jonah's prayer. That's number one. And number two, we have to acknowledge how God responds to Jonah's prayer. Okay, so we have to also acknowledge Jonah's eventual, even if reluctant, obedience. And the outcome of that obedience, uh, Matthew 12:41. Jesus tells us, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. They actually repented. Another accusation that seems to stick from chapter 2 is that the prayer seems inappropriate or disingenuous. As if Jonah is playing the victim when really all of this is his own fault, right? But again, consider that Yahweh responds positively to Jonah. Listen to Psalm 66, 18 through 20. It says this. If I regard, we quote this, part of this uh, in our prayer each week. It says this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be the God which hath not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Did God hear Jonah? Yes. God answered Jonah. So whatever this was here, we, we, we don't need to try and decipher, peer into the mysteries of Jonah's heart and motives and thoughts. We don't need to because we see how God, who can see all that stuff, how he responds to Jonah. Now, was Jonah misreading the story he was in? Was he missing the plot? Was he misunderstanding who the protagonist was and who the antagonist was? Again, I can understand the sentiment, and it, that, those thoughts can be accurate thoughts to some level, to some degree or another. But we really should pay closer attention and avoid taking cheap shots. It's really easy to take cheap shots at Jonah over there. Man, Jonah is really not a very smart fellow for running away from God and getting on a boat, right? We can take these cheap shots at the prophet while completely being oblivious to our own stupidity. And we should pay, pay close attention and, and avoid taking cheap shots. Don't ever forget that when you are reading the Bible, you are reading accounts of real human souls. Jonah was a real person with the same human complexity as you have. He had the same psychological, emotional complexities that you and I have. He's a real person, struggling just like we struggle. Do you ever struggle with God's plan for your life? Yeah. We think, uh, really, this path, God? Really, this thing now, God? This timing, God? Whatever the thing is, we struggle. And Jonah is a real person as well. And so, it, to be clear, there is no emotional struggle that is ever a justification for sin. No emotional struggle, no excuse is ever a justification for sin. And yet, the fact of emotional struggles are not irrelevant to God. They are not irrelevant to our stories. They're not irrelevant to Jonah's story. Jonah doesn't get a pass because he's a complex human being. But that's a part of the story that God is telling here with Jonah, and with us. We're complex people. We have emotions that, we talked about it this morning, that flit and flutter all over the place. We don't get a pass because of that, but that's a part of the story that God is telling. It's not irrelevant to God. It's plausible. Is it plausible, church? that Jonah really did repent and turn at this point and still slip back into sin? You may not think that's plausible since you never do that. I never do that personally, right? We never slip back into sin after we repent, right? We don't ever do that. Of course it's plausible. Of course we do that. Is it plausible that Jonah repents and then says, right back into the same pattern, that same rut that he just got out of? Of course that's possible. Just like it's possible that Jonah, to some degree or another, is being disingenuous and hypocritical, and even here in the belly of the fish. Do you ever pray disingenuous prayers? Yeah, sometimes we do. We've got to repent for even our bad repentance sometimes, right? We've got to confess for our bad confession sometimes. Instead of attempting to sort out whether Jonah satisfactorily repented or not, one question with that I want us to consider is, if not this, if not the words of Yahweh, what words should Jonah have said? If not this, then what? We perhaps are anxious to see some particular and explicit recognition of sin, that it was um, and. That is absolutely good practice. This is why we confess in our bulletins each week, in our confession of sin, we encourage you to confess your sins unambiguously to the Lord. It's not helpful for you, it's not helpful for our congregation to get on your knees or not, you know, to to confess your sin and say, God, I sinned this week, please forgive me, in Jesus' name, amen. Is that true? Yeah, that's a true prayer. But you know what's helpful for you? When you say, God, I let my, my mind and my emotions and my thoughts wander from the path in this particular area here. I had outbursts of anger towards the people that I love the most while keeping a nice, great composure in front of all the outsiders this week. God, please forgive me for my sin. I sinned against my spouse this week. I sinned against my kids this week. I sinned against my employer this week when I did X, Y, or Z please forgive me. That's helpful. Unambiguous confession and repentance. And yet, the rest of the congregation does not have to know your unambiguous confessions for them to work. We don't have to know everybody's unambiguous confessions for that to work. We don't have to know what may or may not have been said by Jonah, apart from what is recorded. But one thing is clear, what is recorded is perfectly sufficient for us to know that this prophet who was running away from God has now turned and is facing, oriented towards, running towards his God. Back to Yahweh. Back to the presence of God. We know that. We know that Jonah did literally change his mind. He turned and he went the opposite direction. And so whatever Jonah's attitude at this point, and whatever it took to get him there, he stopped his running, didn't he? You say, well, yeah, but he was in the, constrained in the belly of a fish. Of course he stopped his running. Who cares, right? God will use all kinds. Of, God will break your legs to stop you from running. Praise be to God. Jonah's human struggle was a purposeful part of the story and not just an insignificant prop off to the side. God wrote the story the way he did on purpose and he made his characters who they were on purpose. He gave Jonah his script. Consider this. If Jonah is in fact being disingenuous and hypocritical, it would not necessarily mean that Jonah should have said something different. What better than the words of God? God gives us the script for our scenes including those of great distress and sorrow and turmoil. He gives us words for our mouth. These words and psalms ought to become ours as well, such that when we are pressed and when we are poured out, this is what comes forth. When you are pressed, when you are poured out, what pours from your mouth? What pours from my mouth? I wish, I wish for myself it was more psalms and less griping. Maybe you can sympathize with me. In our times, um, Jonah finds himself in the pit here, in the belly of the great fish. And so if not this, what should he have said? And our temptation is because we have it all together, our temptation is to pit people. That was a joke. Of course we don't have it all together. We, we try and pin people like Jonah into this corner. People who like Jonah who get busted before they stop running. We pin them into a corner, and if they say the right things, we criticize them. We judge their motives. And if, we, if they don't say the right things, we criticize them, and we judge their motives. It's a lose-lose for people who get busted like Jonah. We should be grateful when people get busted. We shouldn't criticize, well, yeah, they didn't didn't confess without being busted. Who cares? God caught them right where he caught them, right? We We put people like that into a corner and say, well, yeah, they said the right thing, but they probably don't mean it. Or they don't say the right thing and we say, see? I don't think God was like that with Jonah. God gave Jonah his word again. In our times of distress, what comes out of our mouth and what should come out of our mouth, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't feel like obedience is going to be the best, the most gratifying path, what must we do and say? Well, Yahweh has told us. If we look at the, um, the prayer of Jonah, what we see is he is almost every line is quoting from a psalm. And each of those quotations have context. Remember somebody else who, in his time of distress, quotes from a psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, Jonah is quoting the words, the prayers of God, the prayers of the psalms, I cried aloud. Psalm 3, 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. Psalm 121. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Psalm 88, 6 and 7. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Psalm thirty-one, twenty-two. I said, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Already we can probably see why some say this prayer was hypocritical. And of course, Jonah was a hypocrite. Jonah was a hypocrite. Jonah had already demonstrated his high-handed rebellion. But you're a hypocrite too. I'm a hypocrite too. We rebel also. This prayer, is this prayer further example of that hypocrisy or is this prayer a turn? Is this psalm further rebellious accusation against Yahweh who he can flee no further from? Or is it Jonah's right acknowledgement of a sovereign God he cannot outrun and who he has now turned to face? And however you think to answer the question, you must confess the reality of human responsibility and God's sovereignty here. And so even if you wish to continue to call Jonah a rebel, a rebel hypocrite, you must also acknowledge that Jonah is not wrong in what he is saying, is he? Can you find the theological inaccuracy or the historical inaccuracy with what Jonah is saying? Who cast Jonah into the depths of the sea? We say, well, the sailors did. And it was kind of Jonah's fault because he volunteered himself, right? So it's Jonah and the sailors. And we say, yes, and keep going. Who cast Jonah into the depths of the sea? At the end of that digression, you know who who cast Jonah into the sea? The Lord God Almighty cast Jonah into the sea. Jesus gave up his life. He was crucified at the hands of angry, sinful men. Pontius Pilate, the high the priest, the rulers of Israel. But whose hand and plan orchestrated the matter? God Almighty. So we have to wrestle here with the reality of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The sailors were the one who threw Jonah over the side of the ship, but truly it was God who cast Jonah from his home, from his land, from the shores of Joppa, from the fragile and worthless ark of his own devising into the deep, into Sheol and into the great fish, into an ark prepared for him. God, verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish. The Lord prepared a great fish for Jonah. Yahweh did cast Jonah into the deep and it was the floods and the waves and the billows of the Almighty God that compassed about him. But Jonah says with no doubt that he will look again upon the holy temple of Yahweh. And a few uh, lines later in verse 6, verse 6, he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. Is this presumption? You could assume it's presumption. Or or you can uh, assume that this is confidence and hope. You can assume it's presumption, or you can assume that it's confidence and hope. This speech here could remind us, and it reminds me of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain as sacrifice, knowing they would both come down. Now, the question I have, is Jonah alluding to a physical rescue and deliverance in a time when he would look again on the earthly temple, or is Jonah alluding to his eternal life in the Father? believing he would physically perish, but soon be in the presence of Yahweh in the true and heavenly temple. Which one? It's one of them. I'm not sure I know the answer. I'm not sure we have a clear answer, but either way, what is clear is that Jonah has abandoned his futile flight from his God. Remember? Fleeing from Yahweh. Fleeing from Yahweh. From the presence of Yahweh. He has abandoned that futile effort. He wants fellowship restored. He wants back in to the presence of Yahweh. And however God got him here, he is done running. Verses 5 through 7 goes on. And it's poetic language, it's beautiful language, and we have every reason to believe that this is a poetic description of what was literally happening to him. We've no reason to doubt that. Jonah sank in the water, into the weeds, down to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. He says, I've I've come to Sheol, to the place of the grave. But Jonah continues. He says, "'Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God.'" The phrase, "'Roots of the mountains' here may be an allusion to a similar phrase in Deuteronomy 32.22 that says this, "'For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains.'" Now what's interesting about that, it's not the exact words or phrases, but the idea of the roots or the bottom, the foundations of the mountains is there. And what's interesting about that possible allusion is that Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 21 is the key to understanding why Jonah ran in the first place. We'll come back to that more when we get to later parts of the book later on, but Deuteronomy thirty-two fifteen through 21 is the key to understanding why Jonah ran. So now in the depths, in the pit, Jonah remembers Yahweh his God. Jonah was fleeing the presence of Yahweh, but now his prayer has come into his presence. He says in verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Psalm 31, six is the allusion there, the reference. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I trust in Yahweh. Is Jonah making a reference here to Israel and her forgetting of God for her idolatrous pursuits? Or is Jonah thinking of Nineveh? Is Jonah thinking of himself and of Israel and their idolatrous pursuits, or is Jonah thinking of Nineveh here? It's ambiguous. We don't know. And Jonah is, um, this was written that way, I believe, on purpose. It's ambiguous. This doesn't have to be either or. We, we know, we could argue that Jonah's forsaking of God and now his turn back to Yahweh means he's recognizing and confessing his sin and Israel's sin. On the other hand, we know how the next few chapters go and we've seen Jonah's continued rebellious attitude in those chapters toward the people that Yahweh wants to save. And the fact is, whether Jonah is talking about Israel or Nineveh, maybe he meant it that way. It's not a mistake. Maybe he is recognizing his sin and confessing it with the hope that God, who Jonah knows, is willing to relent and show mercy. How does he know that? There he is in the belly of the fish. Maybe he he is confessing this with the hope that God would relent from his judgment coming to Israel. That's what Deuteronomy 32 is going to show us. That um, God will call his people back by pursuing a foolish nation. Showing mercy to them. And so maybe he's recognizing this judgment and saying, God, please have mercy. Have mercy on Israel instead of Nineveh. Verse 9. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay salvation Belongs to the Lord. Psalm 50, 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 3, 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. This truth is foundational from Genesis to Revelation. This truth demands that we reject any notion that salvation is some sort of Cooperative. It's not a co-op. It is not a democracy. democracy. There is no part ownership in it for us. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. That is a, a central truth claim of the book of Jonah. Not just here in the verse, but in the story of Jonah. Because guess what? Jonah functionally is disagreeing without, with that truth claim all throughout this book salvation is of Yahweh, but I'm going to run away because I don't like that. Salvation does not belong to Jonah. And salvation does not belong to us. This is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 9 as he retells God's words to Moses from Exodus chapter 33. He says this. Paul says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know, Paul goes on to talk about, go preach. How will they hear without a preacher? Sometimes maybe we're tempted to read that verse thinking about the one who's making a decision for the Lord. Maybe, maybe Paul is exhorting every bit as much the preacher to those people. It depends on, not on will, preacher. It depends not on human exertion, preacher, but on God who has mercy. Preach to everything that breathes. But I don't see how they could possibly come to be saved. God, look at how rebellious they are. Look at how vile they are. How gay they are. How sinful they are. How could they ever turn and trust you, God? And God would say to us, it depends not on your little bitty peanut brain, child. It does not depend on your opinion or your view or your will or your human exertion. It depends on God." who has mercy. Jonah confesses the truth, but basically surrounding this on all sides, chapters 1, 3, 4, it's Jonah functionally exchanging that central confession for a lie. Instead of salvation is of Yahweh, this little man, like we are so prone to do, insists that he, not Yahweh, should determine who is deserving of mercy. We, not Yahweh, or deter- should determine who deserves mercy. We do that every time we hold our tongue and refrain from speaking the gospel to the people who are lost around us because it's probably just not the right time. How prideful and arrogant of us. Mm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And you know when God says it's a good time to hear the gospel? Today, today, Not tomorrow. Not a week from now. Not on Sunday when the preacher's there. Today, he says. Again, is it plausible that here at this moment, Jonah is being sincere only to slide back into the same sinful trap? Of course, that's plausible. And while the true condition of Jonah's heart remains a mystery to us, it is known perfectly to Yahweh, his God, isn't it? What does he do with Jonah here? What does what does Yahweh do with Jonah here? How does he respond? Well, God speaks to that great fish and tells it to vomit Jonah out on dry land. The vomiting out from the fish from the sea to the dry land is another allusion to Israel. In Leviticus, one of the ways Yahweh describes his judgment if the people commit abominations, is that the land would vomit them out. You will be vomited out of the land. In this prayer, when Jonah prays about how Yahweh cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, perhaps it's an allusion to that. To that judgment, that expulsion from the land into the sea. If you're expelled from the land, you are go to the sea, right? Assyria... Israel would experience that expulsion from the land in a few short years, Um, about 70 to 100 years or so. Assyria then, like the great fish, would eventually swallow Israel up. And it would be a judgment. It would be a dark time. But it would also be salvation for Israel, a protection from the other nations. And Israel, we know from history, is preserved in their captivity. And they're made stronger there. And in the end, they were better for having gone through that captivity and that judgment, that death and that resurrection. It isn't pretty, but Jonah is no longer going down, down, down. He is on his way back up. He was hurled down, and now, so to speak, he's being hurled back up. The Hebrew word here for vomited out is rarely used positively in the Old Testament. And when translated into the Greek, when the Old Testament, the Hebrew text, was translated into the Greek, the word used in Jonah 2.10 is the same word that is often used to describe the exorcism of demons, cast out. And it's an odd deliverance that is, I think, important for us to not just pass over. Why vomited out? It's pretty in-your-face imagery. Why that? Why not just, and the fish, you know, came back up on dry land and let Jonah out. You know, why vomited out? Um, It's pretty odd imagery. Um, And it's important for us to not pass over because Jesus uses the sign of Jonah as a reference point, an allusion to what he was doing. If Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish corresponds with Jesus' time in the heart of the earth, so too must Jonah's violent deliverance correspond somehow with Jesus and what he accomplished. So we've already talked about some of the typology between Jonah and Jesus, but was Jesus vomited out of the earth? In Matthew's gospel, we, we are told that there was a great earthquake And an angel, whose appearance was like lightning, descended and rolled the stone away. Earthquake imagery is violent, like vomiting imagery. It's violent, but let's keep digging. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word used for vomit in Jonah 2.10 is ekbalo, and it's used also with violent connotations. It's most most often translated cast out, cast out. Out. And so if you go and you look up all these cast-out references, it's kind of interesting. But one of them caught my attention. One of them caught my eye. Because there's, it's directly related to the cross. And Jesus says this in John 12, 31. Jesus declares of the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That's our word, ekbalo. Same word that's translated vomited when the, in Jonah in the Greek. In Matthew 12:38 through 41, Jesus likens his experience, Jonah's experience with what will soon be his own. He says, "Just as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth." Perhaps then the casting out is actually related not to Jesus being Cast out, but another undoing. Remember, we talked about these undoings, these kind of chiasms in the literature. These undoings, these development of, of events and then reverse order, undevelop them, undo them. Maybe that's what is happening here. Maybe this casting out is a reference to the prince of the ruler of the world who is about to be cast out. Another issue does arise, though, with what Jesus said, connecting himself to Jonah's three days and three nights. If you've ever done that math, you realize that you have a problem, don't you? If you've ever tried to do the math of three days and three nights, you've realized there's a bit of a problem. We celebrate every um, Holy Week, Good Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. And then we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And we can get to three days, but can we get to three nights from Friday to Sunday? And the answer, plainly, is no, we cannot. Now, it does not matter if you try and count it using Jewish days and hours or Roman days and hours. You can't get three days and three nights. Um, It doesn't matter. It does not fit from crucifixion to resurrection, three days and three nights. Um, You may be trying to do your math in your head right now, thinking, what about Wednesday? What about Thursday? What about a special Sabbath? What about, you know, an allegorical night when the sun is darkened? And the bottom line is, unless you get ready to do some serious origami with the text, you're not getting three days and three nights, okay? But could there be a really obvious and simple solution that's hiding in plain sight? I believe so. One possible solution that some people have suggested is that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, that this three days and three nights is hyperbolic language to emphasize the three days that really we can count. Maybe it's that. Um, That is a legitimate use of the phrase, historically. Maybe it's something else, though. What if, and this is what I think it is, what if by heart of the earth, Jesus meant more than just his crucifixion and his burial? Listen to what the angel says in Luke 24, 6, and 7. If you want to go there, because you may, not, you may not believe this when you read it. It's so simple. Listen to what he says. He says, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Rise the angel seems to count the third day from when not the crucified but from when he was delivered into the hands of sinful men so then what would it mean what would it mean um, the heart of the earth what would it be meant by that phrase well ezekiel 5:5 5, 5 says this thus says the lord god this is jerusalem i have set her in the center of the nations with countries all Around her, Ezekiel thirty-eight twelve says, um, and end of the verse says, "Who dwell at the center of the earth?" Speaking of Jerusalem, Acts one eight, we have the illusion, the visual illusion to Jerusalem as the center. He says, "You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." What's the center? Jerusalem. So Jesus came into his distress and he calls out to Yahweh his God before the cross, remember, in Gethsemane. The night in the garden. And when we lay that event over the story of Jonah, it fits quite nicely together. And there are some amazing parallels and contrasts with Jonah and Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. So if we do this, one will see that Jesus' prayer in the garden would correspond to Jonah's prayer in the fish. And so then we have some reversals Happening. Things happening in reverse order as if an undoing is taking place. You know why? Because an undoing is taking place. Jesus goes to the garden and he goes to the cross to defeat the works of the enemy. To undo the fall of Adam and the old creation. To decreate and to recreate. Jonah is asleep in the ship. But with him... Uh, But those with him were very much awake. Remember? The captain goes and wakes Jonah up. Wake up, you sleeper. When Jesus is in the garden, he tells his disciples to do what? Stay awake. What do they do? Fall asleep. Does Jesus fall asleep? Is he sleeping again in a boat? No, he is not. He couldn't sleep if he wanted to. Why? Because he sees the storm of God's wrath like like the disciples cannot see it. He is troubled in the storm while his disciples sleep now. Then Jesus is the one telling the sleepers to arise. Men came to Jonah And Jonah tells the men who he is and he gives himself to them, but they try and fail to row back to land before they reluctantly cast him over. When the men come to Jesus to take him, he also tells them who he is. And the men draw back and they fall to the ground and then he freely gives himself to them. And remember how Peter in the garden jumps up with his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus? The servant. Jesus takes that futile self-effort and he undoes it. He puts the ear back. He says, put your sword back where it belongs. Like the sailors rowing hard, they didn't have to, uh, they thought maybe there's another way we don't have to give him up. Peter thinks maybe there's another way we won't have to give him up. And remember, this is demonic of Peter, isn't it? Jesus says to Peter when he says, No, Lord. Jesus says to this son of Jonah, Get behind me, Satan. This sinful, demonic insanity who in this moment he tries to steer God away from from judgment, the judgment of the cross, that would be the salvation of the nations. But this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday morning, and around dawn, just before the SUN rose, just before the sun rose, the sun rose. <laughs> if we count from Jesus' distress in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night when he was delivered into the hands of sinful men, we very easily get three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is even now being made new brick by brick. We're not talking about a city anymore. We're talking about a Jerusalem that right now is being built up and made new. The casting out of Jesus from the heart of the earth then maybe is a reference to Jesus' being lifted up and that lifting up being the casting out of the ruler of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be vomited out. It was a vomiting out of the old creation for the beginning of the new. Creation went from water to dry land, if you think back to Genesis. You start with the water and then God creates dry land and now we have a decreation and a new creation. Just like Jonah went from land to water and then water to land, this expulsion of death and darkness is making way for the light and life of Jesus Christ, the new man, the new Adam, the new Jonah. Jesus goes to the heart He goes to the heart. He literally goes to the heart of the earth to deal with the corrupted, the groaning, inside out, upside down creation in order to do what? In order to set all things right. He tells his mother, behold, I make all things new. He comes from the center of heaven to the heart of heaven. Of the earth to Jerusalem, where God makes his name to dwell on the earth to make all things new a new creation, a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new man, a new bride. The waters closed in over Jonah, the deep surrounded him, weeds wrapped around his head, and then the bars closed in on him. He's in the belly of the fish, saved. Jonah had tried to flee to the ends of the earth from the presence of Yahweh, but now in Sheol, in the grave, literally or figuratively, Jonah has turned again toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, back to the center, the word of God once again in his mouth. He clearly isn't out of all his trouble yet. Externally, concerning his circumstance. His circumstances, he's not out of his trouble yet, but also spiritually concerning the sin that still lurks at the door of Jonah's heart. He has a way to go to make it out of that pit, we will see. But with some heaving help from the great fish, he is now moving in the right direction. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At this time, let's prepare to come to the table. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice placed upon the altar. He is the price paid. He is the gift given. And here at this table, we receive that grace again. Grace upon grace. Christ, as I said last week, it is not that Christ is being sacrificed again here. He is not. We look back to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And at this table, He gives us the grace again, the daily bread again, the mercy that Jonah needed after chapter 1 again, and the mercy that Jonah needs after chapter 3 again. And the mercy that Jonah needs after chapter four, again. He gives it to us again and again. And so, church, you do not have to be perfect and sinless to come to this table. You simply have to trust to look to the one who is. And if you are looking to Christ this morning, come and welcome to him here come. Please rise and receive your charge. Our Father meets us where we are, and He brings us up. And that upward movement is not always pretty. That upward movement sometimes takes the dark path through the valley of the shadow of death, doesn't it? Our path to get to the great and heavenly city always leads us, always leads us through the grave. But if we belong to Yahweh, our God, every death, and there will be many, every death ends in a resurrection. Every sorrow gives birth to joy unspeakable. After every dark night, child, there is a dawn to awaken. We are not our own, but belong both body and soul to God. And so be comforted and take heart to see how Yahweh continued to strive with Jonah. Throughout the story, he continues to strive with Jonah and he will continue to strive with you. Wherever you find yourself today, on the mountain or under the mountain, look to Yahweh and read your script. Say your lines faithfully today in your moments of distress. Let the Psalms fill your mouth. Let his word fill your mouth, your heart, and your mind. Amen.